0: Welcome to your Found Family Podcast, where we don't just have a heart-to-heart, we connect soul-to-soul. I'm your host Lizzie, a certified coaching practitioner who found family outside of blood family. In our found family, you are accepted and assured that you are not alone. Subscribe and tune in for educational and empowering soul chats with women from all over the world, talking about well-being, personal growth and development, and mental and emotional health. Step three, refocus. What we learn about the refocus step is that wishing won't make it so. This step helps tell you what to do when you are trying to overcome those urges to do the compulsive behavior. And so the key here is to do another behavior. Before I get started, I do want to put out my disclaimer again that. of these facts that I am sharing with you are not my facts. They come from a book called Brain Lock, a four-step self-treatment method to change your brain chemistry, free yourself from obsessive compulsive behavior by Jeffrey M. Schwartz, MD with Beverly Bayett. So some facts about the step three refocus. The more that you worry about trying to drive some foolish and bothersome idea from your mind, the less chance that you'll succeed. And for those of us who suffer from OCD, we know the truth in this fact. The more that you sit and tell yourself... I cannot believe that you had that thought. How could you think something so horrible? How could you have this mental picture of hurting yourself or hurting others or doing something crazy like jumping in front of a train? How could you possibly think this? You must be a bad person for having this thought. There must be something wrong with you. The more that you worry about trying to figure out why am I thinking this thought? Why does it keep resurfacing? And why can't I get this thought out of my head? The chance of you moving past that thought is not as high. And so as you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well then how do I stop thinking this? This chapter really dives deep into explaining it and it's actually one of my favorite chapters. So I have a lot to share about this step. A key principle in this self-directed cognitive behavior therapy for OCD is this. It's not how you feel, it's what you do that counts. As we talked about in the step 2 reattribute phase, a lot of these obsessions feel so real because of the different parts of our brain that basically tell us that this it, you know that there's something wrong and that if you don't do something, if you don't feed into that feeling something bad is going to happen. As a quick recap, the orbital cortex is the brain's error detection circuit, and that's the part of the brain that tells you that something is right or wrong. And the cingulate gyrus, probably butchered that, but that is the uh, part of, that's the deepest part of the cortex, and it's responsible for giving you the feeling that something terrible is going to happen if you don't act on your compulsions. So again, it's not how you feel, it's what you do that counts. So when you're in the midst of an obsession, it's so challenging to think to yourself that it's just a false message from the brain because it feels real. You feel like you're just in total panic mode. Sometimes it might trigger an anxiety attack. I've been there so many times. I've mentioned this before. I was on Xanax because my anxiety was through the roof and I was literally unable to do normal day-to-day functions, like even driving to work. And going to work, I would have a panic attack so badly that I couldn't physically get myself out of the car to the office. I needed to take the Xanax to calm me down. And so the best way to handle this period of time where you're just stuck, your brain is in a lock, and you keep obsessing over the same thought and not having an answer, the object is to pursue an activity for at least 15 minutes. And this is what the book calls the 15-minute rule. And so when you shift behaviors, when you shift behavioral gears, you're actually improving how the brain works. And as you learn to manage your anxiety, your powers of observation will improve will improve you and it will help you to develop a powerful mind, a mind that is sensitive to subtle changes and able to see the implications of those changes. So right then, and like right right there, I'm just going to take a moment and pause. If I put myself into that state of mind where I have a thought, I don't know what the answer is, and I just sit there ruminating and obsessing over the same question over and over and over again, it's disrupting my day, it's disrupting my pattern. I first remind myself it's not how I'm feeling, it's what I'm going to do that counts. And so for 15 minutes, I'm going to pursue an activity that makes me happy and helps to refocus my attention. And so this shift is literally shifting the gears in my brain and helping my brain to work and function more like properly, basically. It's, I'm teaching my brain how to function properly. And this thought that as you're learning, as I'm learning to manage my anxiety, I'm developing a powerful mind, that fact gives me so much power because it reminds me that I am powerful. It puts the power and the control back into my hands and reminds me that I'm able to do something about it. I can either sit there ruminating and continue to obsess over the same question, or I can tell myself, this is not me, it's OCD. I'm deciding to go do something else. And as the book says, just because your orbital cortex is stuck in gear and sending you false messages doesn't mean that you have to listen to it. That's the most important mind brain discovery around which our UCLA team has structured the, the four step program. And again, that's a direct quote from the book. The orbital cortex is stuck in gear and sending you false messages. And just because your brain is sending you these messages does not mean that you have to listen to it. And again, I can empathize, I can sympathize as someone who has suffered from OCD. Since elementary school and there are still periods of time where I ruminate and obsess over the same question over and over again, I understand how you're feeling. I know what you're going through. I can literally feel your pain. There is so much agony in obsessions and literally the only way that we are able to try and calm the anxiety and to try to get those thoughts you know, to change these thoughts, we perform these compulsions in an absolute, like desperate cry for help and attempt to, to stop thinking what we're thinking. And I can't sit here and tell you guys that I have not wished these things away when scrupulosity was, you know, I was at the peak of really allowing religion to fuel my obsessions and my compulsions were like just praying more, there were so many times where I just like tried to pray these things away. There were definitely moments where I was thinking about having, you know, encounters with the same gender, whether it was like kissing a girl or doing something with a girl, and religion told me, this is bad. You can't have these thoughts. This is against the Bible. This is against what God wants. This is not normal. And I would tell myself, ugh. I rebuke all these thoughts in Jesus' name. I rebuke the gay spirit. And I would literally sit there praying these thoughts away. I was desperately trying to stop thinking these thoughts. But just like if I were to tell you, stop thinking about pink elephants. And that is probably like one of the most cliche things like to bring up a pink elephant because I feel like everyone kind of uses that as an example. But if I tell you stop thinking about a pink elephant... The chances are pretty damn high that you're going to spend some time, you know, depending on the person will will determine like how long you'll actually spend thinking about this. But chances are pretty high that you're going to be thinking about the pink elephant. And I used to tell myself, stop thinking this thought. Stop thinking this thought. Don't think this. Don't think this. And guess what? There it was, the brain lock pattern. I was basically just putting a record on replay or like, I still have an iPod from like the early 2000s and you can put something on shuffle and then ask the iPod to, you know, replay the same, the same song or the same track or whatever. And there's that little icon at the bottom of the screen that looks like the recycling logo. And it's basically, okay, well, I'm going to keep playing the song over and over and over again. So every single time that I was telling myself, stop thinking this thought, stop obsessing over this. Like, why are you thinking this? Why are you thinking this? Why are you thinking this? That was exactly the music, the soundtrack that was playing in my head over and over and over again. So the book says that by practicing these steps, you will be able to expose yourself for longer and longer periods to those terrible thoughts and urges without performing compulsive rituals in response to them. So This goes back to what I mentioned earlier, is that you are developing a powerful mind. You are literally developing a mind that is sensitive to subtle changes and able to see the implications of those changes. Will your OCD go away completely? Probably not. It's a chronic illness. But the empowering truth here, the truth that you need to hold very near and dear to yourself is that... By practicing these steps, you will be able to expose yourself for longer and longer periods. And these urges will basically lessen more and more. And that is incredible. I can tell you from personal experience that the obsessions and compulsions around scrupulosity and around emetophobia are basically like 99% Um I don't want to use the word suppressed because that's probably like a negative connotation, but I have been able to better manage those obsessions and compulsions. So I've basically exposed myself for longer and longer periods of time, and I don't have the same level of intensity when I think that. So for example, if I am thinking to myself that if I don't ask, you know, if, if, Cause let's see, I need to give like a more recent example. Cause it used to be that if I had, you know, one of these blasphemous thoughts, I, I used to tell myself, okay, well now God can't protect you. So I don't have those same obsessions anymore. And so in turn, my compulsions have shifted because the obsession has shifted, but there was a specific incident that happened last month, actually, where I was talking about religion with my friends. And I, I made some comments about how religion just like gives me so much anxiety and I was going on and on and basically having this conversation that we're still kind of, you know, like conversations about my current views on religion and how I personally see it as, you know, something that really just kept me in, in mental bondage because it, it amplified my OCD and, you know, spun in a million different directions. So in that instance, when I was having this discussion literally a month ago, I wrote down in my notes that there was for like maybe 30 minutes, a period of time in my brain where I said to myself, oh, my God, you're talking about religion. You're, you're saying all these like horrible things about religion. Like God does not appreciate that. And now something bad's going to happen to you. And I caught myself and I was like, oh, my God. This is exactly the way I used to think. This is when at the peak of scrupulosity, I would then be a, like basically on a mission to try and find something that was like a punishment because I said, well, you just did something against God and now you deserve to be punished. So I caught myself. I basically, without knowing what the four steps are, I taught myself the four steps. And so to to shift my mindset and to reframe I refocused and I you know went on my phone and basically did something else and just reminded myself like it's not how I feel it's what I do that counts and practiced that 15 minute rule and reminded myself that this is just my brain stuck the gears are stuck So what's also interesting is that the book mentions that there is a spiritual aspect to overcoming OCD as well as a biological one. And for those of you who have the book and want to turn to the page and look along with me, this is on page 76. And it says, it seems that the way God wired the human system, when people focus too much on how they feel, they don't do what they must do to overcome OCD. You can change your brain, but you have to do the sewing to reap the rewards. No one can do the work for you. And that leads me to a really interesting point is that four to five years ago, when I felt that I experienced my own personal rock bottom, I was having lots of suicidal thoughts. I was extremely depressed. My anxiety was through the roof because of something personal that happened in my life, I broke down, my obsessions were consuming, I mean, every single waking minute of my day. And it was true agony and pain. And I just, I didn't know how else to get out of that headspace when I was in that headspace. And so again, it was through reading a lot of self-help books that without saying the four steps, I kind of pieced together from like the numerous books that I read, how to, you know, basically do all these four steps, um, reattributing, refocusing, relabeling, etc. And I do feel like I had a very spiritual experience in overcoming my OCD, but not in the spiritual sense of like religion. That's what's so interesting about all of this is that religion became this like, structured, right and wrong. So what I realized in turn is that I was basically going back into myself. If anything, like I, I refocused on myself and I went inward instead of seeking external things. I went in, I looked at myself in the mirror and learned who I am what I love, what I don't love. Growing up with a narcissistic parent, I had to suppress my emotions. I definitely didn't have the ability to express myself in the ways in which I hoped to. And so for the first time, I was seeing myself and I was learning about myself. And so this refocusing step, especially when it came to this part of the book, it really resonated with me because I can see my story in what, they're share, in what they're sharing. And I thought that was just so beautiful. And so, one thing that I want to insert here is to help you reframe what OCD means to you. Yes, it's this horrible monster, it's this inner demon. But what if you made peace with that monster? What if you gave a cookie to that monster? What if you talked to that demon? And you looked at it with a different perspective. The book helped to share some positive things about OCD. It says quote, "People with OCD tend to be creative, sincere, and very intense." Now, you can't see me, but I'm raising my hand. OCD has helped me to be creative and sincere and very intense, and truthfully, I didn't like that part of myself. The very intense part. I was told growing up that because of my intensity, I was going to drive people away. That people were not going to be able to handle me. See, and I'm getting emotional just thinking and talking about this right now because especially when it came to dating, you know, I was taught like, don't show the person who you really are. Let them fall in love with you first and then show them who you are. Like you're so intense. You're so loud. You're so, you have a big personality. So I taught myself To quiet this personality, I basically shoved this like beautiful little like hippie spirit, free spirit girl into a closet and was like, you're too quirky to come out. You better stay in this closet because no one wants to see you. And like that really, really hurt and really sucked because even though to the outside world, I was happy, I was this bubbly, energetic, friendly person Like, thank God, (laughs) thank God that I, like, was that person because that is my essence. That is my true essence. And when I was with my friends, I knew deep down that I longed and craved for this, like, connection. I wanted to just show them who I thought I was in hopes that they would accept me. And I basically put together this library of references, if you will, that the more I was open with other people, the more I would share things with them, the more honest I was with them about who I thought I was, they did accept it. And so this taught me to be more vulnerable, which is truly now at this age, one of my cornerstone principles of how I live my life. I believe with every fiber of my being in the power of vulnerability because I believe that through vulnerability, we can have these soul chats. It's not just a heart to heart or like a superficial conversation. It's a soul chat. It is a connection that goes deeper than just what we see with our human eye. And again, that's the whole purpose of found family podcast is to be able to speak from the soul. And to share my soul and to share the souls of others with you. And so when I read this in the book, creative, sincere, intense, I'm like, wow, you know what? I fucking love those things about myself. That's awesome. I am creative. I am sincere. And I am intense. And I love these things about myself. And so I I started to see this four or five years ago. I started to give myself this self-love talk and I started to reconnect with my soul and remember my essence not the garbage not the fucking bullshit that I was taught and heard but like really listened to that hippie girl that I shoved in the closet because she was crying she was crying in the closet and she just wanted someone to talk to and there, there are days that go by where I regret shoving her in the closet. But you know what? I didn't know any better. I didn't. And I've learned to forgive myself. And that paved this path to my self-love journey. And has led me to this podcast to be able to tell my story. And I love everything that happened. Everything that OCD put me through, as horrible as it was, as many things as it deprived me of, as many things it stopped me from doing, there was positive in it. The second thing is that you're always figuring out exercises that will help you help yourself. Again, these are direct quotes from the book. And I'm just coloring in the picture with my own personal experiences that hopefully will help you to get a fuller, a more holistic you know view of of what the book is trying to say you are figuring out ways to help yourself that is beautiful people who do not have ocd are not usually typically etc like as introspective as you are you sit with your thoughts you ask yourself questions you dig deeper you try to figure out things on a really really deep level And I want to tell you right now that I see you. I hear you. I know the struggle that you go through every single day. You are literally fighting this invisible fucking monster, like this invisible virus. Think about everything that's going on in our world right now. This coronavirus, it is literally a virus that is invisible to the human eye. No one can see this. People who are not even experiencing symptoms are potentially risking spreading this. I read an article about that earlier today. So there is this invisible virus, this invisible disease that we are all as an entire world fighting right now. And that's what scares the shit out of people. This is what scares people. This uncertainty of like, what do I do? Where do I turn? Oh my God. And now they're being forced to sit with their thoughts and a lot of people who don't have ocd are probably sitting in obsessions and and developing obsessions and compulsions on a smaller scale because their brains are not locked but there's so many uncertainties do i have it does my partner have it do the people around me have it you know how long is this going to last oh my god the stock market what's going to happen right there's all these questions that are so unanswered right now there's so much uncertainty in in everything that we're doing. And it's changing minute by minute. And truthfully for people who don't suffer from OCD, this whole thing is giving them an idea or a glimpse of what life is like for someone who suffers from OCD on the reg, like this level of anxiety, uncertainty, panic, is what someone with OCD suffers with every single day of their life. It doesn't just magically go away. We have to work our asses off to do these four steps, to relabel, to reattribute, to refocus. We spend a lot of time figuring out ways to help ourselves. And we are learning to master fighting this invisible disease. That is fucking awesome. And I standing ovation applaud you for all of your hard work for those hours that you spend fighting the invisible demon in your mind. That is incredible. That is incredible. We are fucking superheroes. Okay. Like we are superheroes. That is amazing. And the third thing is you have the power to change your behaviors. Learn how to start relying on yourself again. I touched on that a little bit when I was giving my personal story and my background about all of this is that I learned how to tune in, how to plug in to my true self, to my soul. I looked at her with love and compassion and forgiveness and gave her her power back because there are, this book literally tells us with science, facts, everything backed up that you have the power to change your brain chemistry. You have the power to change your behaviors. Remember that you have the power. And so going back to some of these facts again, as human beings, we have the capacity to observe our own behavior. To use our impartial spectator to increase our mindful awareness and to make thoughtful decisions about how we're going to value and respond to the signals that our brain is sending us. Again, direct quote from the book. These are facts, okay? You have the capacity to observe your behavior, to increase your mindful awareness, and to make decisions. That is what I want to leave you guys with in this episode is giving yourself that power back, owning it, taking control, knowing that you have the control. And as a recap of the steps, number one is to relabel, calling it what it is an obsession. Number two is to reattribute, place the blame squarely where it belongs by reminding yourself it's not me, it's the OCD. And the step three refocus is to walk away from the sink or from the religious praying or from the whatever it is that your compulsion is to walk away from that and do something worthwhile that makes you happy. So there's also an example that I just want to share quickly. And this is on page 83. And this is direct quotes from someone named Anna. Who, is this from Anna? I think this is from Anna. Nope, sorry. Jack. Jack is someone who conquered his hand-washing compulsions and uh, basically gave this as a direct quote. So when Jack would call the doctor to say that the drugs were giving him explosive headaches, the doctor advised him, just hang in there. You don't abandon ship if it develops a little leak. Eventually, Jack realized that medicine just wasn't going to do the job for him. He told himself, This is it. It's up to you now. You've got to change your behavior. You just can't rely on chemicals to change your life. Years earlier, Jack had developed an intolerance for alcohol. Jack faced facts. I was running out of options. I had to start relying on myself, not on medication. Then there's, you know, another paragraph, but I'll just skip to this other part. He says, I began trying not to give in to the thoughts that my hands were dirty and would spread contamination everywhere. Of course, I was anxious at first when I didn't wash, but then I discovered that the longer you don't give in and find out that nothing happens, the easier it gets the next time you begin to have a history of incidents in which nothing really happens when you ignore the obsession. And the reason for bringing up that direct quote and just highlighting his words is because when he says that when, you know, he discovered that the longer that you don't give in and find out that nothing happens, the easier it gets. That is another part of this healing, this recovery journey is that Again, you are giving yourself this self-love talk and you're telling yourself, you know what? You can, start to rel- you can start to rely on yourself. Now with the emetophobia, for example, I did actually end up throwing up from alcohol. And I know that that's like kind of a common thing, but you know, for someone who suffers from emetophobia, I was avoiding everything that could even potentially make me throw up. Certain foods, etc. I mean, I didn't like alcohol and I was, you know doing it for religious reasons and blah 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 blah, whatever. But there also was this aspect of not wanting to drink because I was terrified that it was going to make me throw up. Well, one day, I went out with one of my friends from college. She was one of my roommates. And believe it or not, I somehow was out drinking her, even though I'm still to this day shocked because I don't know how I had that in me to do that. Clearly didn't have a tolerance, and so I got really drunk and threw up. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what, like nothing bad happened. The world didn't stop. Like it wasn't that bad and it did help. So it gave me that power back. So that's also why I wanted to bring that up. Now, this chapter also brings up a very interesting topic about ROCD, which is relationship OCD. And this is the story of Anna. And she also gave direct quotes about just let your thoughts go by without trying to figure them out. Trust and believe that you can manage your OCD rather than allowing it to manage you. Very similar to Jack's experience, when it comes to certain obsessions, and ROCD is definitely one of them, whether you're having obsessions about asking yourself, do I love my partner? Is this going to last? Did I do something to upset him or her? Why am I, you know, questioning things, etc. And when we ask ourselves these things. When we're in a relationship where we're happy and things are going so well and you can see a future with someone, you feel guilty, you feel horrible, you question yourself, you wonder like why am I having these thoughts? And again, on default, we try really hard to think other thoughts because we're not to, we try really hard to to cast out those thoughts by telling ourselves don't think them, don't think them, rather than trying to refocus. And so for sufferers of OCD who you know, whether it's germ-related or et cetera, you know, there are certain obsessions that lead to compulsions that are external, right? Like the compulsive, um, a compulsion to want to wash your hands. But when you're struggling, again, this like inner demon, when these obsessions are, I just have a question that can't get answered. And no matter what, my compulsions aren't even going to really satisfy and, and silence the anxiety because it's a thought that just gets stuck in a loop of asking yourself the same question over and over again. And then the fear, everything, like everything amplifies in your body. You start sweating, you start, you know, everything, like your whole body, your whole physiology just shifts because you're so fearful. It's really challenging because how do you just like not have that obsession when you don't have an answer to something? Again, bringing back the example of the coronavirus. If someone is sitting there asking themselves, do I have it? Do I have it? Do I have it? Well, guess what? You might not see symptoms for up to two weeks. So that's anxiety provoking. Like you literally have to just sit there and the only thing that you could do is, or the only thing that you think, let me rephrase that, the only thing that you think that you can do is just sit there and obsess and just wish the thought away. But just like Anna says, just let your thoughts go by without trying to figure them out. That's a big help. That's been really helping me too. Is like the more that I tell myself, eh, that's a weird thought. I want, you know, it's a weird thought. Sometimes I'll tell myself like, oh, I wonder why I thought that. But then as soon as I think that, I spiral. So I'm trying to, again, like refocus. And if I tell myself like, hmm, that was... That's a really silly thought. A lot of people think that. And instead of trying to figure out like, well, why does this mean that? Blah, blah, blah. What if, what if, does this mean this? Do, and trying to find like the pieces to, you know, put together and, and try to like Sherlock Holmes, this unsolvable case. It's like, just let your thoughts go by. And again, trust and believe that you can manage your OCD rather than allowing it to manage you. As you implement the four steps, you will gain confidence that you can prevail just like Anna in the book says. And that again is really empowering. You're building these references in your brain. The more that you practice these four steps, the longer that you go without having to do a compulsion. You know, all of these things are helping to strengthen this new pathway in your brain. And you are literally changing your brain, your brain chemistry. So shift and reframe your thoughts. Remember that even if your obsessions and compulsions reappear, they will never again have the same power over you. Like a woman Karen says in the book. All of this ties in and helps you to change your brain. So one final thought that I want to add is a friendly reminder that you must be active. You must practice these steps. Again, these are tools that you need to use. If someone gave you the blueprint of a house and told you every single room that was gonna be in the house, how they wanted to decorate it, what color the walls were gonna be, what kind of furniture, etc., but then you had the tools in front of you and you didn't actually build the house, guess what? It's not going to get done. It's just going to sit there as a pretty picture and sit in your mind as this pretty concept, but you need to see something through from concept to completion. And having been a recruiter working with creatives, that is the, the way to describe this is like you have to, this is like a concept and now you got to see it through to completion. And it's more than a concept. There are literally science, science backed facts, that are reinforcing the importance of what these tools can do for you in your life. But just as that cliche saying that you can't make a horse drink, you you know, you can you can't force the horse to drink from the water hole, you can just show it to them. Remember that like no one can sit there and force you to do this. You have to do the work, and it's hard. It's not easy, and it's not going to take you a day. And I don't say that to discourage you. I say that because I say that in a hopefully like a way that's empowering you because you know that you are not alone. You know that what you're going through is not something that only you're going through. Like we've all got your back and Twitter and this podcast. Again, these are part of your toolkit. These are all ways that you can reach out and ask for help and ask for extra support. You know, we're, we've we got you. We've got each other. And as someone who's been on this journey using these tools for the last like two, three years, well, really the last four, mm, I didn't, I, okay. I was, I was figuring out which tools to use in the first year or two. So I've actually been using the tools for the last two to three. So as someone speaking from experience, who's been using them, I can tell you that it is the most rewarding experience ever. As I shared, this, these tools will literally help you reconnect with yourself, to eliminate fear, to eliminate guilt, to gain a, a clarity, to give you the, like, to empower you with the knowledge that now you understand how your brain works. And that's incredible because that is the step Like, these are the steps that you're going to take to heal and to recover. And recovery is possible, and you can do it. So I just want to leave you with this. You got this. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and tune in next week for a new topic. To help spread the good vibes, please share this episode with friends and family. Or if you share on social, be sure to tag me at Coach Lizzie.